And so we got the holiness of God part, now we get the, uh, the, the better part. Though it's all, all good. Someone once said to me, I like the God of the New Testament better than God of the Old Testament. The God of the New Testament is loving, the God of the Old Testament is mean and judgmental. And my thought was, you know, God is loving. He's always been loving, and he always will be. He's also holy. He's always been holy, and he always will be. Wasn't that he changed from being holy to being loving? In his holiness, he was always loving. And that's what we want to see today. See, we diminish the love of God if we don't understand the holiness, if we don't understand the actual price that he paid. As I said last week, God couldn't just overlook or ignore sin. He couldn't just wave his hand, say, these are not the droids you're looking for. This is, this is not sin. It's not real. No, because it is real. And the reality is that God is so pure that unrighteousness won't exist in his presence when his glory is revealed. And you see in the, the Bible indications of the last day or the day of the Lord where that glory is revealed. He lives in, he's, uh, dwells in unapproachable light and uh, there will be something of a consuming that will take place. So God didn't just overlook sin, he had to remove it. And that's why one of my favorite verses in the Bible is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, those of you who've been around a little while, you realize that almost every verse I preach from is one of my favorites. Uh, it just happens to be the one I preach it from. But verse 21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. I mean, you can read through that and pass over it. But what it actually says is that Jesus not only died in my place, he died to remove my sin. He became sin. He took my sin upon himself. Now think about what I was saying last week about the holiness of God, the purity of God. He's different, but he's so pure that no corruption can exist in his presence. And that was Jesus who put that aside. When it says in Hebrews that he didn't count equality with God something to be held onto, but he laid it aside and became a man. He put aside that holiness and knowing that he was going to actually become sin. Think about that. Perfectly pure. Beyond our comprehension. And the accumulated sin of the world was placed upon him. I can't comprehend that. It's amazing, but as a result, he was separate, separated relationally from God. Not only did he exist in this pure holy form, but he existed in this perfect fellowship, one with the Father. Became separate, faced loneliness beyond what we can ever comprehend for us. Pretty amazing. It's what we call grace. Grace is one of those words that we throw out, 
definitions and it becomes something oh, that, that we get focused on. Let me see if I can illustrate for you. I have, a, as I just said, I have a new granddaughter. I have two other granddaughters and two grandsons. I have three boys, three uh, daughters in love. And uh, can you imagine? Got to use your imagination here. Somebody breaks into my home. Young man comes in, breaks into my home one night and kills my son or my grandson or my granddaughter. I'd be devastated, as would you. I'd be angry. If I were to get, let my anger grow and do everything I can to get them, I'm going to make them pay. That's vengeance. That's the way of the world. If I were to just leave it to the police, I'll let them take care of it. That's justice. If I were to say, I'm not going to allow my anger to overwhelm me, I'm going to not hate them, I'm going to forgive them, that's mercy. But if I were to approach that young man and adopt him into my family and feed him and clothe him and educate him, make him equal with my sons as a co-heir and love him, that's grace. And that's what God's done. He's done everything he can to love us. As I said last week, God doesn't send people to hell. He does everything he can to see sin removed so that we're not consumed. He is always loving. But love goes beyond. Now when I think about grace, I'm overwhelmed. When I think the fact that God so loved that he gave his son. As a father, I can't comprehend that. It's one thing if I were to say, I'll pay the price. It's another thing if I say, I'll pay the price by letting my son pay it. See, there's something in us as parents that say our responsibility is to protect our kids. Our responsibility is to help them grow, but we would never intentionally put them in a place of being hurt or abused. In fact, just the opposite. We would do everything we can to stop that. It's kind of beyond our comprehension that God so loved that he gave. Knowing what it meant, Jesus was going to become sin. Jesus was going to become separate from, from the Father. He did that so that he could adopt us as sons and daughters. It's pretty amazing, huh? It's beyond our comprehension. And as amazing as that is, it's only half the story. There's more. I should have steak knives or something. 
Hebrews 12.2 says, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. You know what the joy set before him was? It was you. Too often we think, for the joy set before him, going to heaven, being reunited with God, he was already there. He didn't have to come and die. That wasn't the joy set before him. That's not why he went through all the stuff he went through. What changed by what he did? It wasn't his standing with God. It was you. It was me. All that that he endured, he endured for the joy of having intimacy with us. Isn't that amazing? Turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Chapter 22 was in my Bible yesterday. (laughs) Someone removed it. Verse 14. When the hour had come, he sat down, and the twelve apostles with him. And he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Fervent desire, with passion. See, this is not the story of somebody who's going through something. This is the story of someone whose love is so overwhelmed that they say, I'm passionate to sit here with you. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it, uh, uh, sorry, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and he gave thanks and he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. But behold, the hand, uh, sorry, likewise he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. I want you to understand something. I've said part of this to you before, but when Jesus instituted the new covenant, Hebrews tells us the old covenant was complete. The old covenant was the sacrifice for sin. He was saying, with my death, that's no longer an issue. It's done, and and Hebrews says it's actually become obsolete, which is a funny word. It was completed. All this, if you read through the Old Testament, all this leading up to sacrifice and and lambs and, and the sacrifice made and the offerings and all this stuff leading up to Christ is all complete. And he says, now I institute a new covenant. It's not the same. It's made the other one obsolete. The sacrifice is done. The holiness of God has been uh, honored, has been upheld. The sin will be removed in his death and he says, that allows me to get to what this was all about, which is a new covenant. 
I've said this before, but what they understood in that culture, the way it was done, they had this Passover, but there was a separate cup. So as he took the cup, and he said, take and drink this. And they took the bread, and then he took the cup after supper. There was another cup that was set there during the Passover as a prophetic declaration of something new that would come. When Jesus took that, they knew exactly what he was doing. This is the new covenant. This is everything that the prophets have talked about being fulfilled. But in the culture, it was something different. In the culture, it actually had a symbolism in the engagement of a couple getting married. Now, there was an agreement with the parents, but at this time in Israel, the families would sit down and have a meal. The potential bridegroom and his father and the potential bride and her father, and they would sit there and they'd have this meal, and after the meal, the potential bridegroom would take a cup and he would extend it across the table. And basically they've arranged this thing and they've agreed on the dowry, the bride price, everything, but the, the bridegroom would extend the cup and say, I choose you. And by taking that cup, the bride was saying, and I enter into covenant with you. See, for us, covenant begins with the marriage. For them, it began with the engagement. That was the new covenant. This cup that Jesus extends is an indication of marriage. It's his love for us. It's not a covenant based on righteousness and doing the right things. It's a covenant based on love, this sacrifice that he made. If you think about it, it's almost like Jesus saying, you put me on the cross. I had to die for your sin, but I still choose you. That just overwhelms me. See, I was raised in a very evangelical church, and I knew the doctrines I knew the concept of the love of God, but I'm not sure I ever knew the love of God. I knew the belief in the love of God. We used to sing a song about the love of God and God proved it when Jesus died on Calvary and it was a doctrinal belief. But it wasn't something I'd experienced. I wonder if there's any of us here this morning, that that's the case. Before we get to that, let me say this, don't let Christmas be reduced to a child in a manger. Newborns are lovely. They're cuddly and they're vulnerable and there's something in us and I'm a new grandpa and there's something wonderful, and we can all relate to that, but that isn't what this is all about. This is the greatest demonstration of holiness, the greatest demonstration of love, and the greatest romance ever known, all brought into one. 
And how can we reduce that? See, the devil doesn't mind a baby in a manger. That fits within our culture. I happened to watch just a, a little bit of a, a Carol's thing uh, in the domain last night, and they started with declaring Jesus is king. And it was, uh, was absolutely amazing. I thought, uh, for those of you who haven't figured out yet, I'm originally from the States. And in the U.S., any Christmas program has nothing, nothing, not one carol that's about Jesus. But I was just shocked, not shocked, delighted that it did. But then the announcer came on and just focused on the wonderful singing, the song. Not what the truth of what they were singing, but the person's voice and the great job they did with that song. I thought, wow, you missed the whole point. When we reduce it to just a baby, we miss the whole point. God's love for us. We're going to share communion. We don't normally do that at Christmas, but we are. Because uh, I want you to understand, Romans 5.5 5 says that the love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. Hey, I got it right. I want to take a few minutes and allow the Holy Spirit to do what only he can do. Which is to pour the love of God in our hearts. Not to just talk about the love of God, but to experience. There's something about being overwhelmed, saturated in the love of God that changes See, we understand that when Jesus instituted a new covenant, he basically saying, everything I am is now yours. And we're saying everything we are is now yours. I think we got the better end of the deal. But that's what that covenant was about. Jesus leaning across the table and saying, I choose you. See, Jesus is still choosing you. God so loved, he gave. God is still loving, always will be, and he's still giving. He wants to pour his love upon us. I'm going to ask some of you to help me out. There's some uh, communion stuff in the back there. We need uh, some people just to go grab some bread and juice or whatever we have there. And if you would, you guys just organize it. Make sure everyone gets some. Don't let it come to you and then stick it under the chair. Uh, pass it along so that everyone gets some. Now this is where I'm just going to waffle for a couple minutes.
If you just take it and hold on to it, and we'll take it together in just a moment. The objective reality of the universe is that God is holy. When he declares he's holy, he's declaring what is. God cannot change his holiness because it's who he is. He's aware that at that day when his glory is revealed, his holiness is so pure, so bright, that anything unholy will be consumed. He cannot be made unholy. And recognizing that, he realized that once we sin, we become unrighteous. He didn't make us sin, but once we sin, there's this problem and that we won't be able to exist in his presence. So in his love and his holiness, he devised this wonderful plan where Jesus became sin for us, took our sin upon himself, removed it, paid for it, it was gone. Bible says he's removed your sin as far as the east is from the west, so has he removed our sin from us, our transgression. That's incredible. And then it goes beyond that and Jesus says, and now I enter into a new covenant with you. This is me waffling. One of my other favorite verses, Romans 8.32, says, He who did not withhold his only son, but gave him up for us, will he not also freely give us all things in Christ? See, that covenant doesn't just mean our sin is removed and we can come into God's presence. As awesome as that is, that's, that's incredible. There's no fear. We can come into his presence. We don't have to be afraid. There's no consuming. There's no fear of condemnation. But he also says, I've entered into covenant with you. You're my bride, and everything I have is yours. Will he not also freely give us all things? What do you need? Do you need provision? He's in covenant with you. He paid a huge price to be in covenant with you. I mean, you would think that we would have to pay the price. We get the better end of the deal. It should cost us everything. Well, it does actually cost you your life. It does cost you everything. But everything you have doesn't even come close. But he says then, I freely give you. As we take this, this morning, let it be a reminder to us of the totality of God's holiness and God's love.
but also the romance. See, when Jesus extends that cup and he says, I choose you, when we take that cup, we're in covenant. And he says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. It's not just remembering something that took place 2,000 years ago. It's actually remembering that I'm in covenant with him. Sometimes we forget that. We get focused on the things around us and we, we think, oh, we slide back into, I've got to do things in order for God to approve of me. I've got to do something for him to like me. Somebody will share something and, and we feel this pressure. I, I have to, to act differently. Now, everything in the life that we have in the kingdom is freedom that comes from being full of the love of God and it overflowing on us. It's not a pressure. You have to tick these boxes. You have to do this and this and this. And if you don't go to church on Christmas Sunday, you're going to hell. No, God's not like that at all. He's doing everything he can. So he says, if he's not withheld his only son, but given him up for us, will he not freely give us all things? Do you need healing? As we take this, remember you're in covenant. Do you need to know him? If you've never taken communion and recognized that Jesus was offering you a covenant, take it this morning with that understanding. Enter into covenant with him. He says, this is my body, broken for you, completes the old. And this is my blood of the new covenant. And he's sitting there saying, today, I choose you. Will you respond to him? Thank you, Lord. I had to shut my mic off there because my crackers chewing was very loud. <laughs> I'm going to ask the, uh, the worship team to come back. We're going to spend a couple minutes just allowing the Holy Spirit to pour the love of God into our hearts. I encourage you, if you're more comfortable being seated, then stay seated. If you can't worship without standing, then you're welcome to stand. If uh, the Holy Spirit overwhelms you and you can't stand and you can't sit and you fall on the floor, that's okay too. But I just believe there's something of God wanting to pour. The Holy Spirit pours the love of God in that covenant. And we just want to allow him a, a chance to do that. Okay? Okay?